update spintech newscast my name is john and with me as always is steve and now we're in uh, 2024 welcome welcome back you survived that's that's my greeting to everybody now thank you it's great to be here john how are you <laughs> good 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 yeah yeah a lot of changes here in uh in san francisco around silicon valley it's all ai um money still coming in thank goodness somebody's still putting money in around here uh, it it seems like that's that's a new gold rush, right? It's 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 uh, the AI space. Yeah, 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 yeah. You have to keep your your skills uh, attenuated to the market, I guess, if you want to survive. You know, all that uh, Fortran coding just doesn't uh, hold up anymore. That won't pay the bills anymore. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It did into Y2K, but then after, yeah, <laughs> not, not so much. A little less. A little less. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, what's your big plan for 2024? 2024. Um, I think I'm gonna do more of me. Just do more Steve. Do more fun stuff. I mean, I I already sort of prioritized my my well-being, but I think that I'll, I'll do more of that uh, going forward. Um, my wife mentioned that, and she's as ever, you know, as always, wiser than, than than I am. She mentioned that I shouldn't really focus on predictions and more on lifestyle changes. So, what can I change next year that will improve my 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 outlook and my well-being in 2024? Yeah, that that's a good point. So you, uh, what's the uh, a reasonable per person tries to change himself and not the world? It's an unreasonable person who who changes the world. Exactly, exactly. So I'm just gonna try to work on myself for 2024. Yeah. How about you? Huh. I've never heard a wife try to improve her husband like that before. No. <laughs> never so, happened. Yeah, pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we're lucky to have a, a guest that can help us um, sort things. Actually, that does that. That helps people uh, figure things out uh, in in a complex world, complex area. Uh, we're lucky to have Sofia Matveva, the CEO and founder of Tech for Non-Techies. Welcome to the show. Hello, Steve and John, and hello, listeners. I'm so happy to be here. You might detect a small accent if you're listening uh, she's joining us from London. Yes, it is cold. Um, the weather is predictably <laughs> terrible. And, mm -hmm. But you know what? It's Britain. We're all used to it. And I think, you know, people in London work really hard. And I often wonder what would happen if we actually had good weather. I think London productivity, you know, London, your listeners will know, it's a great hub for fintech. And would yeah. any of that actually happen if the sun was out? I don't know. I think British people just love to be in the pub enjoying themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It might be a different world. Yeah. Growing up in Southern California, I was outside playing with my new Frisbee on Christmas and uh, during the winter. But uh, yeah. Now, did yeah, you manage uh, you... to have a career at all? Because honestly, I think I have a career because most of the time it's just too horrible to go outside. So you might as well do some work. You're specifically focused on, uh, a, like your company name says, tech for non-techies. Uh, how did you end up doing that? How did that get started? Well, you know what? It was a complete accident. I didn't mean to start this company. This it was an, you know, one of those unexpected love children. That's what this company is. So, um, <laughs> I I'm not a technical person. I started my career. I worked in the media, and then I joined a private equity firm in London, and then I got my MBA at Chicago Booth. So, you know, very kind of financy. And very. when I when I was doing my MBA, I decided, okay, you know, I want to get out of finance and get into tech, and tried lots of different things and essentially started a tech company when I was at business school. And, you know, 
with that kind of background, you can raise money, even if you have no idea what you're talking about. So I did raise some money. And that meant that I could hire developers and I had a tech team. And honestly, guys, I had no idea what my developers said to me. They were speaking a foreign language. Because <laughs> think about it. If you've never heard the term API, or you don't know what a backend is or a front end, you literally like, no, you don't come out of the womb knowing this stuff. And so my development team was speaking to me in these words that I didn't understand. And I was thinking, well, I'm the CEO. I'm in a kind of responsible position here. And I can't resign because I've got investors. I've got to figure this out. And so I did start learning. And I was writing about what I was learning in a column that I was writing for Forbes. So I wrote a series of articles on what non-technical founders and what non-technical leaders need to know about tech to work successfully with their colleagues. And to my great surprise, these articles did really well. And I saw that actually there were a lot of people like me, you know, people from the business side who never intend to become coders, but we need to work with coders successfully to create great careers or to create great companies. There's no and, avoiding them. Yeah, well, and you know, the thing is, there is such a divide, I think, in terms of mindset, in terms of what we learn. And because there's this divide, there's a, often a mutual suspicion. Um, and I really then started saying, like, well, I, I'm trying to bridge that gap. And so during the pandemic, the use case for my first company was completely killed. But without me ever intending to, People were asking me to teach them tech for non-technical founders or tech for business leaders. And so I turned my Forbes um, articles, I started creating a podcast instead. And so the Tech for Non-Techies podcast was born. I then started teaching courses at London Business School. I guess lectured at Oxford University. I led one of the Techstars accelerators. And all of these requests on like on tech for non-technical professionals kept on coming in and that's how tech for non-techies was born so out of demand rather than out of basically any good planning well wow, so just one thing led to an or somebody heard about you from somebody else or or and, well, and maybe honestly, had seen the article and it just kind of snowballed yeah well the thing is forbes you know they're pretty established right so when you write an article for forbes they already have so many hits on their website so you could probably write something you know not particularly brilliant and you will have a lot of people finding out about it sounds but, like we found our niche yeah <laughs> but what was good is that actually the articles that i was writing for non-technical leaders so i wrote things like okay uh, what non-technical founders need to know about tech, what investors say about non-technical founders. Then I started writing about, okay, what do business leaders maybe in big companies who are, you know, business leaders in large tech companies, what they need to know about technology to lead successfully. And those articles did exceptionally well. And out of that, people started contacting me. And I'll be honest, I was so flattered the first time I taught the workshops that I now charge thousands of dollars for, I did them for free because I was like, oh, wow. my God, somebody wants to listen to me. I was so surprised. <laughs> yeah, I we know just, how you feel. I was so <laughs> I was so surprised and I was so flattered. <laughs> and so literally the stuff that now companies pay me thousands of dollars for, I was just giving it away for free. And then at some point I thought, hang on. What happens if I charge? And I remember I did this event and I 
And I thought, okay, I'm going to charge 25 pounds per ticket. And that's like $30. And I thought, this is nobody's going to pay. This is going to be a disaster. <laughs> it's going to be terrible. And all of the tickets got sold out. And I was like, hang on a second. What if we make it 50 pounds? <laughs> and yeah. And basically, I just kept on going up and up. And there wasn't like, eventually it hit a ceiling. But I mean, the key word here is eventually. And one of the reasons why I was so surprised is that I didn't, it was very hard for me to actually learn the skill set that I ended up, well, that I'm now teaching. Because as you guys know, in Silicon Valley and everywhere, there are now lots of coding schools. So if you want to become a coder, or if you want to become a data scientist, like if you want to completely retrain, there are lots of opportunities like general assembly, you know, all sorts of places where you can do that. Mm-hmm. But a much more surface level holistic understanding like I couldn't get that anywhere because my options were okay you know maybe you should learn python or I don't know html or c plus c plus plus or maybe you should do product management but the thing is if you're not technical you don't know the difference you literally you You don't don't know know what you don't know yeah yeah you don't know that c plus plus is a hard thing and like, you, you like you're like maybe i should go and do that i'll, I'll do it and over the weekend this weekend i'm going to do it oh really i'm going to learn c plus plus just over a weekend yeah okay. yeah well, yeah. In- <laughs> yeah so yeah that's interesting um uh you you say that it's kind of hard to pick and it, and it does change over time what's um i mean some things stick around for a while but what is the the kind of common thing that that uh it's like a big misunderstanding that you find when you do these things So this is going to sound so obvious, but in these, in the kind of traditional business world that I came from, you know, private equity, media, and the kind of the traditional business world, everything is, has to be perfect. So let's, I think the best example is a lawyer because we've all had to deal with a lawyer at some point. So when you hire a lawyer and let's say they are making you an agreement to like, I don't know. Uh, let's be a bit morbid. Let's say you're hiring a lawyer to get divorced and they, they, they're they giving you this agreement. You do expect the lawyer to essentially get you divorced, like that this piece of paper is going to say that you can get married again. The lawyer is not going to say, look, I think this is going to work, but I'm not sure. So why don't you take this agreement and just assume that you're now divorced and just try to get married again. And like, if you're getting married and like things go wrong, then just let me know and we'll kind of just make the agreement a bit, a bit better. We'll iterate, we'll test again, and then we'll see if you can get married again. Like that would be a terrible and really insane lawyer. So lawyers and you know people in the traditional finance world um, and people in like consultancy, even in advertising to some extent, they have to produce an absolutely perfect output. Like there is no iteration. And when you have to produce something really, really perfect, you spend a lot of time on analysis and you spend a lot of time on planning. In the tech world, it is completely different because it's all about releasing something and seeing how the market reacts because you can change things so quickly. Oh, so you've been to Silicon Valley. <laughs> well, I've been to Silicon Valley, but also in general, you know, just even think about if you're releasing any kind of digital product, whether it's an algorithm or an app, if it's a digital product, you can iterate based on, you know, user reactions or market feedback. And so people have a much more, like, 
some people would say loosey-goosey attitude, but I would say kind of an attitude that's much more, well, let's just release something. Let's not worry about it too much. And then let's see what happens. It's a much more experimentational outlook. Yeah, yeah. And like that break things. What, what's it? How's it go, Steve? Fast and, yeah, move fast and break move things. Fast and break things. things. Yeah. 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 And in these big traditional companies, literally, if you moved faster, if you broke anything, you would be fired. So people are incredibly risk averse. And then you become they, a podcaster. Yeah. Yeah. Then basically, then you become a podcaster. So that difference of perfection versus iteration, that's one of the biggest things where I see tech people getting annoyed with people from the traditional business world and people from the traditional business world thinking that tech people are basically insane and are not completing their tasks and you know are, are basically creating crap and both they're, they're of both them right. are right yeah, they're both right, right. <laughs> yeah just, so what's the solution um for for the, for that well the solution is understanding what kind of context you're in so you know if you are if you're buying a house and you are getting a lawyer to draw up a deed, you want that deed to be perfect. You do not want to hand over, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars for a house and then to find out that actually it's not yours and it belongs to someone else. Like you in that world, it needs to be perfect. But if you're releasing an app, there is no such thing as perfection because you're going to change something soon. Like you're, you're definitely going to change something in a couple of weeks. So the key is to understand when is perfection, when when is that the aim, and when is iteration the aim. And so I think in companies, especially in you know big traditional companies that are going through digital transformation, some of what they need to do is to still you know stick to that traditional perfectionist planning planning and analysis type of thinking. But another part is going to have to learn that they have to learn to be much more iterative and essentially, you know, try things, things don't work out, doesn't matter if it didn't work out, you just pivot, you do something else. So it's, it's about application. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, in, in some cases, but there are some cases where, let's say your banking software has mm -hmm. to be bulletproof. Uh, so in those cases, or maybe some, you know, defense or something like that, uh, what can you do in those kind of cases? Or you just end up spending a lot more money, maybe. So the thing is, again, it's understanding the context. Like, where can you, where can you afford to be more iterative and more experimental? And where does it have to be absolutely perfect? Because in some parts of banking software, like the security has to be absolutely perfect. So that's something that you can only plan for and test in really closed environments. Other things like, you know, where you put buttons on a Revolut app, for example, that can be much more experiment, much more experimental. So it's basically, it's about risk assessment, right? Like where, where is it more risky to experiment and where is it more risky not to experiment? Does that make sense? Yep. Got it. Got it. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, so what what kind of areas um, uh, are people asking about these days? What, are there some new topics that uh, are, are coming up more? Well, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning of this episode, everybody's asking about AI. And mm. that's good. I mean, that's useful. Also, it's impossible not to because it is literally everywhere. 
And, you know, I am encouraging everybody to get to know ChatGPT. That is really, really useful. But what I find is that sometimes when organizations or, you know, company leaders come to me and say, okay, we want to upskill our organization and, you know, we really want to focus on AI. And I think, well, do you guys know anything, like what have you done about digital mindset in general? Have you done anything? And when they say they haven't done anything and they want to move straight to AI, it's a bit like, well, why don't we learn to walk before we can run? Mm-hmm. And so I do think learning about AI and what that can do is really useful. But a lot of people in the traditional business world, they're kind of fuzzy about what an algorithm is. And so I say, well, why don't we just figure out, why don't we teach people what an algorithm looks like and what it can do? Why don't we just teach that basically so people can then understand? And then we can go into you know, how these things can pr- process data and what AI actually is and what that might mean for your organization. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Like you mentioned, you really started taking off and uh, building up over COVID. Uh, mm-hmm. how, did, how did that go? Was that better? Because um, people were virtual anyway, or, or was yeah, it so, uh, uh, slow things down a bit? Well, so, you know, to be honest, um, because I had no plan, I didn't really know what I was doing. You can't miss your goals if you don't have a plan. Yeah. Well, yeah, basically, like if you have no, like if you don't, my my vision, like I, I had a vision, I didn't have a plan. Now, you know, I'm in my, I think, fourth year of business. I have a plan. I have a team, you know, now it's all professional and all of these things. But at the beginning, at the beginning, I had a vision for what I wanted for the world rather than a plan for how to achieve it. And then I just tried a bunch of random stuff. And, and then I was like, oh, this works. I'm going to do that. Um, That's a very, then, yeah, entrepreneurial mindset, too. Yeah. And but, you know, also during the pandemic. Why not? I think we're all a bit like, oh, God knows. <laughs> we might all be dead tomorrow. Might as well just. So why do you want to start this company, Sophie? Yeah. You know what? Why not? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> Honestly. And I'm going to change the world. And I'm going to change the world. Yes, of course. Um, But, you know, my mission with this is to help to help people on the non-technical side, which is why where I am, to basically give them the knowledge and confidence they need to succeed in a world changed by technology and what i so my original focus and you know it still is the non-technical people but what i found fascinating is that more and more technical people are listening to my podcast and that these technical people i mean i know some of them they are like leaders in their fields and at first it used to really freak me out because I was thinking, oh, my God, you know far more about technology than I do. Why on earth are you listening to me? And then I started seeing that a lot of the time, people on the tech side, they really know their field in great depth, definitely much more than I ever will. But they don't necessarily have a holistic overview of what's happening in the sector. And also what I found, so, you know, I've asked some of them, I said, well, you know, why do you come to my classes? Why do you pay to take my courses on all this stuff? One of the other reasons they say is that communication is really difficult. I'm sure your technical users, technical listeners are going to identify with this. You know, you need to explain something to a business person. 
And you're trying, you're like doing your best to explain it to them, but the business dude just doesn't get it or just keeps on asking stupid questions. And this is what I mean about kind of this digital divide that we're living in. Often people who are brilliant programmers or people who are brilliant engineers, they started taking things apart when they were like eight. And so they went down that track of technology and development from a very early age. And so they've been hanging out with other people like that for, for a really long time. But in order to have a successful career, no matter what, whether you're going to be in a corporate or in a startup, you have to collaborate basically with the money people. And that's the business people whether that's going to be venture capitalists or whether it's going to be, you know, the CFO, arguably more scary than the venture capitalist. Basically, the people who have the money, because you need to get the money to to build the thing you want to build. I find actually working in the Valley as well, that there's a really valuable layer that sits between sort of the technical folks, which you say have been taking stuff apart since they were eight or nine, and and either the end customer or the money folks. And that's where, you know, it's 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 often maligned, but I think that mm-hmm. you do need sort of a middle manager who can translate that from the technical terms that, they, that those folks tend to, 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 to speak with um, to the more like user-friendly terms. And that's, mm-hmm. again, it's, it's an, oftentimes it's a, it's a malign sort of space. I, th- I think that everyone tends to reactively hate on the concept, the concept of the middle manager. But I think that mm-hmm. that transition is actually quite, quite useful. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, this all leads to a question, which is, um, I, I'm wondering from a, uh, from a pedagogical perspective as well, how often are you actually... Um, revamping your materials and what you teach so that you're not teaching, say, about open banking, which was a thing, you know, two, two or three years ago. And now you're you're looking into, you know, what do folks think about LLMs and chat mm-hmm. GPT and APIs and all that. So how how often and, and, and how do you customize your, your coursework to make it more attractive to the audience and to make it more relevant for the next, you know, one or two years or so? Mm-hmm. So customization is generally about the industry and the, about the client, right? So if if I'm hired, so for example, I'm now doing a piece of work for one of the world's largest law firms and they work with basically the big tech companies. And so the work that I'm going to do for them and the trainings that we're going to create uh, is they're going to be completely different to say what I would do for a business school because business schools also need this education for their executives, right? Like for executive education. But that that's going to be really different to say what lawyers that represent Meta or TikTok are going to need, right? So customization always depends on basically getting to know the client and what they're working on and what their problems are. But, and so, you know, literally if somebody just buys one of the pre-recorded courses from the Tech from Techies website, obviously it is not going to be customized, but also the price reflects that, right? But in terms of what people need to learn and updating material. So I would say some material needs to be updated really, really regularly, but I also need to be really careful not to give in to tech hype. So for example, my view is that the AI revolution is going to take a long time. It is genuinely going to change businesses from the inside. It is already doing that. There is a lot of value in it. You know, which startup to invest in and which startup to ignore, I cannot tell you. But in terms of a real like a revolutionary technology, I believe AI is worth learning about. I did not believe that about the metaverse. So I didn't really do much on the metaverse 
when it was completely hyped up. I think and har- that, har- hardly anyone did, by the way. <laughs> you know what? A lot. I had a lot of pressure. So I had a lot of people saying like, you know, we want to learn about NFTs and we want to learn about the metaverse. And I was thinking, well, do you? Do you really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, we're going to pay you in Ripple tokens. Yeah. Yes. And, and I had to, to be honest, I had so many startups, you know, in that space reaching out to me saying, will you be our advisor and we'll give you equity in our startups? I'm like, no, definitely. 100% no. I do not want your <laughs> yeah. Ripple tokens. No. And so this is, so it, yes, I update the material when there is something that I believe is a genuinely worth people learning about and also be something that I myself am interested in. So for example, I don't teach anything about crypto because you know I have my own views on it, which we don't necessarily need to go into here. But this is not something that I believe everybody needs to know about. I don't think every single person to have a successful career needs to understand you know, the depths of crypto and blockchain. But I do believe that every single person to have a successful career as a business leader today does need to understand, yes, new concepts about AI and generative AI, but also really classic concepts. And this is where some of the material I teach I updated to see whether I still agree with it, but essentially it's classic stuff, like a product is a solution to a problem. You know, that really basic concept that product managers and user experience designers all know, you'd be surprised. At Chicago Booth, which is consistently ranked the top business school in the world, we didn't know that. When I teach this concept that what is a product? A product is a solution to a problem that somebody has. I literally get gasps and I get told that this is the most intelligent thing people have <laughs> ever heard. Well, it is more like, the, oh, this is a series of cash flows over time or? So what I find in the traditional business world, which is where I came from, is that it's all about top-down corporate strategy and kind of vision. So it's all about, okay, Where do we see opportunity? Which market shall we enter? And that's corporate, that's top-down corporate strategy. And so, you know, the C-suite will call in, say, McKinsey or Bain or whatever, and then they will do some sort of market study on what's happening with the GDP or various countries and geopolitical risks. And then they'll say, yes, and now you should launch your product in Albania or whatever. (laughs) That does sound like McKinsey. And then they'll say, yes, let's all all go to Albania. Where is it? (laughs) That's going to be the plan. And there is, you know, we're making fun of it, uh, but there is definitely room in the corporate world for corporate top-down strategy. Like, it's not all completely useless, but what I say to people is that whether you're going through digital transformation or not, you need to understand your user. You need to know who your customer is and not, you know, for compliance reasons, but to serve them better, <laughs> right? Like to, to, to understand what is it that they want? How, what are they getting frustrated about? If you understood that, your marketing campaigns could be better. Your products could be better. And to have that design thinking approach. And so actually, when you ask me, what are people asking me about? Another thing that 
is now becoming really popular is design thinking. And I'm really, really happy about that. Oh, getting popular again. This is a regular cycle. Well, you know, it goes up and it goes down because I think this, this like really simple truth of, okay, focus, like understand the problem, understand the user, and then be iterative in your solutions for that user. This really simple thing, I find that in the kind of traditional MBA business world, people almost, people don't believe it because it sounds so simple. Like, they're like, no, but isn't there a framework? Isn't there a spreadsheet? Can I do a cash flow analysis? Yeah, it's like, right. no, get to know get to know the people whose money you want and good things will happen. Yeah, but, so, yeah, you, you take it back to the basics. Like, so these things come out. Like, I, I know there's tons of books about uh, uh, design thinking in the early 2000s. Um, it seems to think like IDEO uh, was kind of everywhere. And then uh, uh, you, you kind of make sure it sticks, that these are evergreen kind of uh, uh, processes and, and cultures and ideas uh, that we kind of wander away from maybe with some of the hype and the money distraction that goes on. Yeah, and, you know, also, like, I would argue that, you know, when Facebook bought Instagram, that was that was a kind of a design thinking approach, right? Because essentially, they were saying, okay, lots of people are using Instagram, You, our users are on Instagram, if we want to increase our user base, like, this is what they're doing, so let's go do that. So it was a bottom-up decision. Does that make sense? Like, it's this is what people, are, this is what our people are doing, so let's bring that into our universe and we can essentially keep our people but then the decision to to go hard into the metaverse that was a totally top-down decision like how many people really wanted an oculus rift i mean maybe some people in silicon valley but like normal people in the normal world yeah Um, yeah It it did get so much press and uh, attention yeah, but they've got too much money. A little bit. They, they spent so much money on it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the amount of... I remember I went to a conference and there were panels on the metaverse everywhere. And I was thinking, am I the only person who thinks this is nonsense? You know, when you're like, wait, hang on, am I getting it wrong or are they getting it wrong? Like, somebody's wrong here, but I'm not yeah. sure who it is. How, how do you um, distinguish? I, I guess you can wait to see if there's actual business value down the line. But earlier on, when these things are getting developed and you're, you're like, well, they're putting a lot of money into X kind of solutions or projects. Uh, how, how do you how do you know early on? Uh, how, how does one know early on, what, what, you know, what things... Um, you know, will actually pan out and which things are, are actually going to be uh, part of our toolkit? Well, you know, first of all, of course, you never completely know, but it just goes back to what we were talking about, you know, problem solving and design thinking. Like, what does, if I have, a, if you were to send me a virtual burger right now, you from Silicon Valley to me in London, what problem would that solve for me? Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't solve a problem for me. It would right? make money for me. I don't know. I mean, it's like <laughs> I'm, I'm still gonna be hungry. I'm gonna be like, well, thank you for sending me a picture of something that I can't eat. I'm even more hungry now. <laughs> That's not going to solve your problem, 
it's not going to solve my problem it's just going to be annoying will like can is there a use case maybe in military operations is there a use case for factories absolutely i'm not disputing that yeah yeah absolutely in specific cases it is absolutely wonderful but the Oculus Rift it wasn't about specific case. It was about like everybody's going to sit around in this thing and go to virtual restaurants together. That's, no, yeah, yeah. because it's we're not mind, virtually hungry. Stupid. Yeah, it's mind-bogglingly stupid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas yeah. when we look at, you know, certain AI applications, obviously not all of them, because, you know, there is now this hype where, you know, you can... Like you can say that your cat is AI operated and then somebody like somebody will fund your cat. Um, so, <laughs> every, every every boom, it happens. Yeah, yeah. like there, there, is, there is a certain amount of insanity, but you can also see that it is a technology that makes some processes cheaper and easier. And businesses are always interested in automating a process to make it cheaper. So... Yeah, I can see that that's going to have a wider application than putting a thing in your head and looking at things in virtual reality. So it's in a very uncomfortable way. Well, I think in that case, just the technology is nowhere near what they kind of hyped it up to be. That would be so smooth. It would. Yeah. Um, it would and make you'd have you feel legs. there. And and but the reality is, when you put it on, it's heavy on your face. And it's jerky sometimes and you don't have good connections. And well, uh, what you described sounded interesting. If it was like a a little tiny little thing of glass glasses, maybe in 50 mm. years of, yeah. uh, of um, miniaturization and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and getting into your brain or whatever it is. Uh, but what you have now just is nowhere near what that that vision is. There there are a lot of examples of uh, tech kind of getting ahead of itself. It, it's just not there yet. Like uh, self-driving cars comes to mind. Well, self-driving cars. And also, have you seen the movie General Magic? It's one of my favorites. I have not seen that, no. No. So it is. Um, it was the top documentary on iTunes, I think, for several years. And so... General Magic was a spin out of Apple and it was, I think, like in the late 80s or 90s. And essentially, it was the precursor to the iPhone. So a lot of the technology that is in the iPhone was created by this company called General Magic. And the engineers who worked there then became the engineers who um, essentially built the huge products that we all use today so the people there did genuinely change the world but this product this product that they created i would love for you and for your listeners to just watch this documentary because it's so it's internet history but it's also kind of a key of what not to do because they invested a huge amount of money into something that essentially was something that was too expensive and not really too expensive for most people to afford and not something that a lot of people really needed and it was the technology was that was my my last uh, employment review (laughs) before i left (laughs) too too expensive well you know what it's better than being too cheap right yeah yeah yeah. i always say that i want to be that guy where they are like they pay that guy way too much you know, yeah, when you were early in your career, you had that, you you were like, I want to aspire to be that guy. Yeah. 
exactly and also who wants to be the cheap specialist like who wants to get <laughs> right. like yeah i'm gonna get the cheapest person for the job it's like who wants to like the cheapest surgeon no, no. <laughs> you have the right, choice right. thank <laughs> I you need now, heart I, surgery. I have a response now <laughs> yeah. to that comment yeah great yeah, exactly. uh, I'm sorry, I interrupted your general magic. I completely forgot what I was saying now. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, yeah, but they'd spend a lot of money. Um, uh, they spend a lot. Yeah, they spend yeah. a lot of money. Um, basically, creating something that people couldn't afford it, didn't really need at that particular time. Then, as technology moved on, then. They could bring down the cost. And also by that point, you know, people were using Blackberries, like smartphones. It made sense for then this next generation of phones to exist. And so General Magic, I think, is a it's a really good case study for people to understand why, like what being too early looks like in practice. And also the dangers of basically not believing the market not believing market research and just being like, yeah, but we really want to build it. <laughs> yeah, I like it though. Uh, yeah, yeah, I like it. I want, I want my thing. So, is that Steve Jobs' talent? Is to to know that it's the right time for a certain technology? Because you know, in that first iPhone, uh, it's just so many changes, and so he had to, to just take a chance, and or. Or in his case, he didn't think of it as a chance. He just saw it. You know, he had that conviction. This is the the next thing, and people will love it. Uh, so was that his talent? Is knowing that that first that that's mostly true, and uh, uh, and the technology can can actually perform the way it needs to. Well, so the thing is, he was an absolute genius. So we this I'm not disputing that. However, saying that he pulled it out of just thin air is also not entirely true because general magic it was an apple spin-off so they literally already had a failure of trying to bring something like that to market and it didn't work so you know if you you know we will be in a situation when we want to invent something or we want to create something and we're kind of and we then decide that, okay, this is not the right time, or we're told it's not the right time, or we're told that there's no budget. You kind of then keep on looking at the industry and trying to get a feel for it. And so, yes, he definitely had more of a sense of what's happening in the market and what people are going to want. But it, that he had more sense of that than most people. But he, he also had the kind of experience that other people didn't have. Does that make sense? Because he was already in the space. Right, right. So, yeah, yeah. You know, he had lots of ups and downs uh, before the iPhone. Uh, that's for sure. And uh, but he was already so, in the space of like, you know, he already saw what happened to the Newton. He already saw what happened in General Magic. So he already saw, OK, these things didn't work. This is why they didn't work. This is how conditions need to change in order for them to work. It wasn't like, you know, me just making something up like that was completely random and being like, yeah, I have made this completely random new thing and everybody's going to want it. Right, there right. was iteration and there was watching the market. It's just it wasn't like it it's it was just done in a more, I guess, invisible way. Does that make yeah, sense? No, no. He, he wanted to do that for a long time. Uh, mm -hmm. I think uh, he said uh, like he wanted to Star Trek. Was it Tricorder? I never watched it. Yeah, so he was just trying to build towards this goal, and finally there was, there was a, the all the technology pieces. 
you know, he's famously very demanding. So if it's not good mm -hmm. enough, back yeah. to the drawing board, go back and, and you know, when it is ready. So yeah, reading that market that way. Yeah, and he did some, some uh, I mean, Newton wasn't him, but he did set, you know, uh, a, a lot of um, yeah, but he saw uh, ups it and downs it. before that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of... with next and everything. Yeah, yeah, and the thing is, I mean, I think as innovators, it's we all should look at other products that failed and to try to work out, okay, why what happened. So basically, we can learn from you know we can learn from somebody else's mistakes rather than learning from our own, rather than making them ourselves. So then you know we get that tough lesson. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, it sounds like um, uh, your uh, your overall it's just not like a tech for for non techies, but uh, you know a little bit of design thinking, a little bit of strategy, uh, a, a little well, bit of um, both, learning right? lessons from the past uh, technology. That do you, do you get into the hype cycle at all? So, what do you mean? Oh, uh, there's a graph of with uh, technology about how oh. Uh, uh, technology it's like a really steep, oh yes um... the adapters yeah when people adapt it and then when it's a uh you know actually that's a, you know funny enough that actually happens in the fashion industry a lot um just as an aside i'm an advisor to a company called riveter and they they're a visual search company so essentially they use ai to predict consumer trends and so they sell that insight to beauty brands and to retailers to basically say in three years time you know 25 year old women in san francisco are going to want this shade of blue and so then retailers and you know brands can start stocking up on that shade of blue and making things and if you get these predictions correctly basically the brands can make a ton of cash. That's basically the the famous scene from that movie, The Devil Was Right, right? Where I think, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mer Mer yeah. Meryl, right, right. The whole, yeah. yeah, yeah. I I picked this blue, and it came to the store, whatever. And yeah, yeah, it's pretty interesting. I yeah. I, I wonder how that actually translates to to your life. Like how much, how much of those people there actually are in the world? Like they can predict or even shape things like color preferences. You know, so months you know or what? weeks or even years out. So actually, there is this debate now in the fashion industry between causation and correlation. So not, not causation and correlation, but basically what came first, the chicken or the egg? Because there is there are a couple of very, very powerful companies that uh, basically predict trends. They're called trend forecasting companies. And so Riveter, they are, you know, a small tech startup that actually sells their insights to these larger trend forecasting companies and then those trend forecasting companies sell it on and so one of them one of the really big companies is called wgsm which is but that's basically the biggest one that's that's the one that dominates everything and now what people are wondering about because like wgsm will come out with their prediction and say so let's say they're going to come out with their prediction in 2024 like in january 2024 and they're going to say this is the color palette that we expect to be popular in 2027 and so all of the brands and retailers get this color palette and then they're like oh okay we need to make lots of items in this particular color palette and then you wonder did WGSN basically make it up? Like, because then that color palette is what's popular because everybody listened to the forecast. But what would oh, have happened if there was no forecast? Yeah. Do you see what I mean? And so yeah, exactly. who who is creating the trend? 
is WGSN correctly predicting a trend that would have happened anyway? But if it didn't, or if WGSN didn't exist and didn't tell all of their customers, which are basically the world's biggest brand, that this is what you need to do, would that have happened? See, these Who paradoxes, knows? We, we don't know. That, we don't that's know. why we can't have time machines. That's um, right. Maybe we have alternate universes where people are wearing different shades of blue. Yes, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, one, one last question here uh, as as we close on on the whole take for not 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 take a thing as well. I see a lot of my um, let's call them braggart friends on LinkedIn who post. I just got a, a certificate in Python for business managers for uh, you know oh, yeah. XYC or AI for for policy or something. How useful is that in actually creating lasting change? Is that just once one step along along the journey or just sort of a window dressing for? A function that somebody with, or, or rather, um, uh, yeah, for for a function that, that that somebody in that role will never actually do. You got to build the CV. Well, so yeah. you know what? I'm going to be honest. Like, I'm going to give you an unpopular opinion here. I think certificates are useful if they come, if if they're incredibly hard to get. So, uh, you know, uh, a degree certificate from, I'm going to say, Chicago Book or Stanford or Harvard. That's a certificate worth having. That's going to open some doors for you. Like that is a useful thing. It's extremely expensive, but it is a useful thing. Getting another, you know, the getting like another random certification from an online course, I don't think that that's really going to do anything for you. Getting the knowledge will. So there's a difference between just going around and essentially collecting certificates like digital badges in a computer game, like that's, don't do that. Like, <laughs> But getting knowledge so then you can become a more successful professional, that's useful. So for example, I mean, I obviously I sell education, but also I'm a huge consumer of education. So yes, I have my you know fancy MBA, but also I keep on buying courses and some of them, theoretically give me certifications but I don't put them on my LinkedIn because that doesn't matter what matters is does it make me better at my job am I more insightful can I advise my clients better can I teach better like that's what people care about so yeah I'm, I would be really I'd be really wary because you know if somebody has a bunch of certificates but they can't actually think for themselves and they can't digest that information and turn what they've learned into something useful then it's just a bunch of exactly. digital badges exactly yeah it's just padding for for your cv yeah exactly yeah yeah oh okay wait i'm deleting these off of my linkedin right now <laughs> hold on <laughs> Just give me a sec. Yeah, some great advice. Uh, very practical, down-to-earth um, thinking uh, that I think we do get swept. I did um, uh, read a lot about the the metaverse, and the, and I do check out uh, NFTs, what kind of use functions, um, use cases uh, they can have. Uh, and, and often there is something, but uh, yeah, much more narrow or mm -hmm. focused than than what the, the hype is. So it's good to be reminded of that. Uh, thank you for that. Well, thank you for having me on and asking such great questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, definitely. Um, well, the world changes all the time. Uh, so we'll definitely have to have you back down the line. I would and love then that. We'll, we'll talk about our 
our personal uh, VR suits or something like that. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> so maybe yeah. we'll all meet in the metaverse. I mean, God knows. That, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, Sophia, you had a prediction last time. <laughs> like, yeah. So that's uh, Sophia Matvieva, the founder and CEO of Tech for Non-Techies. Also an interesting podcast by the same name, Tech for Non-Techies. Check it out. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. <laughs>